0: Hello, creeps. Welcome to the horror vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. You're fond of me, lobster, ain't ye? I seen it.
1: You're fond of me, lobster. Say it. Say it. Alright, yeah, fine. Okay, fine, fine. I like, I like the, I like the lobster. Can we just, please, start the episode? <sighs> <laughs> Hello everybody and welcome uh to another Horror Vanguard episode. My name is John, uh and I'm joined as always by my co ghost, uh my friend and comrade Ash. Ash, how you doing?
0: Pretty good, pretty good, no complaints. Uh trapped out here on this lonely island tending a lighthouse, as usual.
1: Uh just a regular just a regular day then, just a regular day. And we are very excited to be joined uh by a returning guest to the Horror Vanguard crypts. Uh Connor Habib is back with us. Connor, how you doing?
2: Hi, I'm very excited and also kind of bewildered. So <laughs> that's,
1: a, that's a great that's a great headspace to be in, I think. <laughs> um you uh if you've listened to our episode on uh Midsummer, you'll you will know Connor, you'll know the incredible work that he does. Um but for anyone who has not listened uh to the Midsummer episode, and damn it you should, because that's a damn good episode of the show. Um, Connor, do you want to, do you want to kind of just tell people a little bit about yourself and what you do and the ways that they, people can kind of find out more about you and your
2: work? Sure. Um, I, my sort of main gig right now is I am the host of a podcast called against everyone with Connor Habib. And the intro to the show is that it's uh, I talk with countercultural figures and present complex, philosophical, spiritual, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. I've said that like eight million times now, recording the intro to my show. But <laughs> it's basically, coffee. the it's I- good copy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Basically, the idea is instead of having like small talk, I have big talk because like I've been on a lot of podcasts, this one not included, where I <laughs> we we start going deep, and the person would change the subject and it would drive me crazy. so I started my own and I've had like lots of great guests on there talking about all kinds of weird things. a lot of times we talk about the occult, we talk about sexuality we talk about leftist politics so people like Billy Bragg and Maggie Nelson and Mona Eltaahawe and Abby Martin have all been on the show um, and every once in a while there's a solo episode about a theme as well so that's my main gig. I'm also getting a PhD here in Ireland and I'm studying um, supernatural and paranormal experiences here in Ireland. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, that's what I'm up to. That is that is very, very cool. Uh, just on a p- personal note, I'm
1: a, I'm a huge fan of Against Everyone uh, uh, and I really love the episode <laughs> with um, Franco Berardi uh, with Bifo.
2: Oh, right. Bifo. Yeah, I forgot to say that. I forgot that your listeners would actually know who that is. Um, <laughs> yeah, the the one with Franco Bifo Berardi was one of the best ones. I mean, and also he's so friendly and warm. And I think, you know, I always do my conversations in person. So mm. um, there's always a very, uh, yeah, there's always a kind of quality of warmth to all the conversations. And I think that that is something that makes my show a bit different. It's not um, cold and calculated like yours is. <laughs> um, but no, it, <laughs> um but also like i'm sure you guys will put this in the show notes but i have a patreon it's patreon.com forward slash connor habib so if you like this show or whatever please go there and, and, and support it. It's the only way i fund the show and uh yeah and it's great it's like my you know takes up a lot of time so it's good to have patrons and people that listen and support the show
1: absolutely and uh you're quite right all of that uh links to the show links to your social media and importantly links to uh patreon will be in the show notes um on uh, soundcloud so please do check all those out um and we're super we're super excited that Connor has agreed to come back uh on the show uh and ash do you want to do you want to talk about the film that we are going to be discussing today
0: you mean you mean the uh egger brothers lighthouse from 2019 (laughs) yes i'm so excited to talk about this movie this movie was ridiculous um
1: in in true HV style then I think I think we're at the point now where it is time for uh, for those of you who've maybe not seen this film uh, have not had the chance to watch it yet um, it is now time for Ash to explain exactly and 100% factually and accurately what the Eggers Brothers light, The Lighthouse is all about
0: uh, yes and I can think of no one better to sum up the words for this than Erica Eigen <laughs> I want to marry a lighthouse keeper and keep him company. I want to marry a lighthouse keeper and live by the side of the sea. I'll polish his lamp by the light of day so ships at night can find their way. I want to marry a lighthouse keeper. Won't that be okay? No, it will absolutely not be okay. If your lighthouse keepers are Willem Defoe and Robert Pattinson, you are going to live your very short life in a drunken stupor before one of you is buried alive and the other one is pecked to death by seagulls. You're possibly going to masturbate with sea monsters. I'm not quite clear
1: about whether or not that happened, but we will get into that momentarily. Um, yeah. Okay. I, and amazingly, that is, that is one, perhaps the least weird and most accurate plot <laughs> recap that we've ever done on this show. <laughs> um, yeah. We're talking about The Lighthouse, follow-up to uh, The Witch, which was one of my uh, favorite horror films of the last sort of five years or so.
2: Um where where should we start with this where should we start well uh, so i want to i want to say something um to begin so i saw this movie at a film festival in cork in ireland where i live and um you know was in a really really shitty theater film festivals i don't you don't have to use the old beautiful theater if the sound and the seats and the picture are shitty Mm -hmm. um but (laughs) uh But I will say like the thing that was really striking and we'll get into this more as we talk about the film itself was like this is a weird movie for Irish audiences to see because there's nothing scary or weird about A shitload of rain Like Terrible Weather (laughs) Gloom Seabirds Hard labor People like Shouting at you With beards You know Like (laughs) Drinking a ton Having repressed emotions Like All the things In this movie That created tension Were kinds of staples Of uh, Just being Irish (laughs) And especially In a coastal Irish city Yeah So You know I mean I think That created a really Weird effect The first time I saw it I, I watched it again after um at home but seeing it there like that i mean i think that's part of the risk that this movie takes is that because there are moments of humor in it um that it can uh depending on the audience and who is it who it's shown to it can kind of lose some of its potency mm. it didn't for me but everybody in the theater was laughing their ass off from start to finish um in this movie <laughs> there i mean it was you know because it was punctuated by humor i think that people who are used to the things in that movie that are meant to vote tension um they were just sort of attenuated to laugh and just laugh the whole way through so i had a very Strange experience the first time I saw it, and I want to also say that like I love that you um, are having me on the show to talk about this movie, which is the follow up to The Witch, like you said, and we watched Midsummer, which was a follow up to Hereditary, um, and they both have this sort of uh, they have similar challenges as films, mm. I think um, as follow up films, but this one succeeds where I think Midsummer really failed. Um, but you also, it's really interesting to see the themes in these filmmakers, uh, you know, the sort of bag of, bag of themes, bag of tricks, whatever, where, you know, like in Hereditary, you end with this decorated, this room decorated with corpses and this kind of, uh, diorama, you know, Mm -hmm. and then the same thing in Midsummer, and in this, you know, like, and maybe we can talk about why in a bit, rather than having the witch, Rise Up into the Air, The Witch is also one of my favorite movies, I think, ever, you know, horror movies of the past five years, but I'd love it totally. The Witch, you know, rising up in the air, whereas this, you know, the last scene is someone um, being uh, drawn into the ground, you know, with similar kinds of feelings, similar kinds of consequences in a weird way of the journey that they go through in the film. So, um, I think that that's where I'll start and maybe, uh, yeah. I'll just I'll just leave it there and then we'll go in a ton of different directions, I'm sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh Ash, what do you what do you think?
0: Yeah, I definitely I definitely agree with a lot of those comments. I I think that where where Ari Aster kind of stumbled over Midsummer, uh Eggers has absolutely nailed uh Lighthouse as the follow-up to the witch. He's he's two for two, and that's just fantastic. Um both both the witch and lighthouse are definitely two of my favorite uh horror movies of all time so i'm really excited to see where the rest of his career goes if it keeps going like this and um i I think you know specifically one of the things you said i really liked um how you pointed out how the themes between the witch and lighthouse have some parallels and one of the things that i found to be really interesting for those parallels was that the witch is really this exploration of kind of the horrific feminine and women's agency and power and kind of like a patriarchal system and how that can be depicted and gained and lost um and this this follows kind of a very uh a similar i guess thematic strategy but this is all about masculine tensions and masculine power and how that can be gained lost operated and what that does to people so yeah it's kind of, it's kind of where I'm at with this movie
1: yeah um one thing i really one thing I really like about Egger's work and to kind of pick up on what you're saying about the development of themes is uh i think he's he's a he's a filmmaker who is incredibly interested in like pre cinematic art in film uh you know the witch is is uh like structurally and linguistically incredibly interesting and this one as well, the, the Lighthouse, is is made in a way that doesn't resemble like a horror film. It resembles almost like, uh, vic- like late 19th century Victorian photography. You know, it's got this incredibly closed-in aspect ratio. It's got this like incredibly stark uh, monochromatic color scheme. Like it was deliberately engineered as a film to not look like a contemporary genre film, but to look like something far older and kind of far more, um, you know, almost almost kind of like mythic. It's harking back to really older forms of storytelling, yeah. which I think is really, really interesting.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think... The, the I would tie that into maybe one of two critiques I have of the movie, which I loved. Um, but one is... It's really just in, they're both actually just in comparison to The Witch, which I felt um, like you were saying, he has an interest in pre-cinematic themes, imagery, aesthetics, all that. The Witch really felt like its own thing in a way. It felt unlike any other film, even though we could maybe tease some other films out of it if we wanted to. Um, We could think of something like Hexen, or we could think of even maybe like Warlock, um, (laughs) or, or something like that. But this, you know, the influences were much more present and was almost impossible to not think about them. Um, you know, whether it was David Lynch, you know, which, I mean, there are, Mm -hmm. there are images. Um, so one of the main characters, you know, finding the finding the, uh, the siren or the mermaid and sort of pushing her hair away. You know, it's a it, real double for finding Laura Palmer wrapped in plastic and sort of matted down by the water. Um, or even the Twin Peaks episode with the atomic bomb. Um, or you'd find really li- very obvious literary references, whether it was H.P. Lovecraft or Patricia Highsmith or... Um, Samuel Beckett, even, um, where they're shouting what at each other. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. but you know, or, or the terror of I mean, if people have seen that series, uh, based on the Dan Simmons novel, but I feel like, so I, I feel like there was that aspect of it, which made me, it's not that it made me like it less. I mean, I would like it more in another film, but you're just reminding me that the witch really felt, um, its own thing. And it also felt more cohesive in the sense that, the narrative was not, um, in any way kind of stitched together images. Um, it really had a continuity to it that this movie does not, this movie is much choppier and we can say that that's intentional. Um, I'm sure, but it still wouldn't, and, and, and maybe figure out, you know, evidence that it was intentional, but it still didn't appeal to me as much, um, mm. as the witch in that sense that it, it was, you know, it had it in, its influences on its sleeve, I know probably the director would laugh at me for saying that because he's like, look, I lifted the dialogue from The Witch from actual, (laughs) like, (laughs) actual diaries and so forth, you know, from people of that time era. So what could be more on my sleeve? But as a film, it wears its influences more on its sleeve. And I think that... um, For me, that made it uh, a little harder to be sort of present in. But as I said, I really do love the film, and I think it's largely a successful movie. And I'm happy to be on an episode where we're talking about a movie that we all like instead of (laughs) one that we all
0: (laughs) had trouble with as well. It is a refreshing change of pace.
2: Yes. (laughs) I mean, uh,
1: just to kind of pick up on what you were saying there about The Witch, uh, there's... A lot of a lot of the dialogue here, I think, was also, you know, he consulted like Whaler's journals to try and get the kind of rhythms mm-hmm. of speech down. Um, you know, using the kind of historical songs and the and the uh and the kind of tall tales that would be told, which I think is a really you know it kind of goes back into this it's rare that there's a kind of horror filmmaker who's so actively interested in uh the kind of minutiae of historical detail. Which is another way way of saying that they're interested in the social, right, the relations between people. Historically, um, this is just me saying, like, uh, revealing that I've been reading a lot of Frederick Jameson lately. Uh, but like, <laughs> but, I have, but I think it's true in egger's case, right, that this he's someone who's very obviously interested in the in like the concrete materiality of history, and that means that we have to be interested in like social and and historical materialism as well
0: yeah yeah and to to kind of pick up on picking up on uh what you're both saying like i i liked the i really liked the choppiness of this film right the whole thing had the pace of like you know rough waves breaking on the shore you know every 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 couple minutes on a regular interval we're getting these changes in scene these changes in tone and we're constantly shifting between like You've got like really strong materialist analysis of um Robert Pattinson's character, who who's kind of a new hire, and then his boss, and his boss just constantly threatening to dock his pay and overwork him. And then that immediately breaks up with like shots of mermaids and sirens and these Lynchian dream sequences where log giant, like abstract logs are floating in the ocean. And then like, you know, like the the weird um you have a lot of, like, embodied realities with this film. You know, you've got, like, Willem Defoe constantly farting for, like, the first 30 <laughs> minutes. And then, like, that that plays against the kind of surreal and abstract bodily realities that's, like, being eaten alive by seagulls or having sex with, like, a mermaid.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think just on those, you know, um, on the influence and the bodily stuff, I guess— uh, he said, Robert Eggers said that he was influenced by this painter, Jean Delville. And if you look up, he has a couple of paintings. One is called Prometheus, which looks very much, there's a moment in the movie, you know, where William Defoe's character is beaming light like a lighthouse onto Robert Mm. um, Pattinson's face. And that, um, and so there's that. And then there's also, he also has a, I don't think it has a name, but there's a there's a painting of someone lying on the beach and birds coming down to eat his body. <laughs> and um and so yeah, like the like you're saying is definitely informed by aesthetics that I think are interesting. I guess it just um I don't know why that should be disappointing to me. That seems sort of silly. I think you know, it, I think I just had become accustomed to uh being truly shocked by something that felt new, even though it was, you know, took Mm -hmm. place in an old you know, time and was an old narrative that I was familiar with. But as a film felt so new, this, even though it's weirder, certainly feels more familiar to me in a way. And maybe that's just because of the masculine themes of it. Um, frankly, maybe it's because, um, I felt more connected in a way to the characters and some of the things that they struggle with. Um, which I have plenty to say about as well well why don't we why don't
1: we kind of go into some of that then why don't we' cause I think I think you know this is this is it's a two hander right there's there's just two guys in this film that's that's all there is um and so where what what where would you like to start in talking about this let's talk about them the the two men who are who are leading the
2: film let's talk about yeah where would you like to start with those? Um, well, I think, you know, talking about it as the masculine double to the witch is good. Um, I think that we can start with the farts, basically. <laughs> um, because, That is an amazing you know, sentence
1: is, to say in a film podcast.
2: <laughs> start with farts. Let's start um, with Willem
1: Dafoe's farting.
2: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, I think, you know, there's something really, um, there's something really potent in having a body that can't be romanticized in a way, you know, so. Mm-hmm the the movie is filled with, like, shit and cum and jerk-off sounds and pissing and farts, you know? Yep. And farts almost being, like, the worst in some way because they're goofy, you know, in a way that the other yes. stuff isn't, you know? And so it's <laughs> mm-hmm. it sort of makes the whole thing a little uneasy. And, of course, you know, Robert Pattinson's character, um, Thomas or Ephraim, whatever name you select... But Thomas probably, you know, like loses it later and is, you know, has this whole like screaming monologue about the farts, you know, Um, (laughs) and 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 how horrible (laughs) they are. And I think that there's something there was something for me about that, like, oh, this is how like men's bodies are often viewed is like something that's not romanticizable. um, That's something that's sort of just gross material in its way. And uh, that, of course, ties into some of the labor stuff in this movie. But I think, um, you know, even as you have this really attractive guy, Robert Pattinson's character, you know, like in it, like it becomes in a way very difficult to uh, to make these bodies seem desirable, make their bodies seem desirable. And And even when he's masturbating, um, I mean, it's you know, I mean, I was still aroused, but it you, to, but it is like a terrible, <laughs> it's a terrible scene, you know, and you're not allowed, you know, there's a, that in the long masturbation scene, he's like furiously going at it. And even if you were about to get aroused by that for a second, there is a fish vagina. Like, Ooh. so it's not, it's not easy. And I'm, I'm sure actually probably some people saw that and were aroused as well. I was going to say
0: that's added value for some of our audience. Yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, I know this woman who She's like a porn performer, but she only dresses as a mermaid. She's like a mermaid, like dominatrix. Um, But I think like, I think that these sort of... um you know, like I, I think that that's one of the, the problems that's presented. And it's really interesting to me because I can eroticize almost anything, you know, and then this movie mm-hmm. comes along and it's about two men trapped in some, you know, sweaty, difficult, tense circumstance. And it really tries to buck that, you know, <laughs> and and, yeah. and draw you away from it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I, I think like while I was watching this, like, like in my head, I was like, this is the. Most least homoerotic film I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, like, like the the setup is just so classic for a lot of like, you know, just I guess to use the word again, classic homoerotic tension. But the film is just constantly working to undercut it, and like that that scene, like you know, like I really think that scene is the key, right? We have uh Robert Pattinson who's a good looking guy, and this is like a a tone Robert Pattinson, right? So Robert Pattinson, a peak sexy. And the way the shot is done, we are we're we're in low profile, right? If, you know, we are at eye level right to his dick in this scene and he is furiously jacking off on top of us. And the scene is not sexual or it's not sexualized rather. And I think that that's kind of one of the things that this film is doing, right? it's, it's there's There's a lot of work in this movie to play with, like, what the gaze of this film would be. Because it's giving us kind of like a, a gaze in that scene where we're supposed to, by the way the camera is framing Robert Pattinson, treat him as a sexualized being, right? He's literally masturbating on top of us as the viewer. But the context of what we're seeing and kind of like the weird screeching he starts doing towards the end of it mm-hmm. is trying to to pull out that sexual tension and replace it with kind of like this weird and eerie horror
1: yeah, I would agree. And I think, if anything, like what we've been kind of talking about here is th- like this film is is very much in tune with the idea that there is um, there is only one economy to 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 kind of rip off the and Guattari, right? There is, own, there is no distinction, right, between a libidinal economics and the exploitative economic labor that these two people exist under those two things are not in contradiction to one another, but they are completely kind of uh, not only spatially, but kind of uh, philosophically in- enclosed together.
2: Yeah, this a really interesting way to say it. I mean, you know, the thing that like, I think that's a version of, that is like a version of hell, you know, yeah. um, where the day, the way you live your day out can't be, eroticized in any way can't actually be pleasurable. Um, I mean, I think that that's, you know, it's like the anti Fourier, right? Like Fourier would present, you know, a a situation where you could actually escape work by turning everything, by making everything erotic Mm -hmm. and not just, it's not like the Google, like have a great day at work and eat organic cereal and slide down the You know, inflatable slide. But, like, Fourier was just like, no, like, it's not even going to be work anymore. Like, it's actually, yes. these are all going to be erotic activities, you know. And this movie is the opposite of that. This is what you're saying, the Delusion um, Quatturian, uh, <laughs> critique. Like, you know, this the seam is there. And I think it, it's interesting. There are, like, revealing moments of that. There's a moment where William Defoe says, you know... Um, the worst, the worst is the doldrums. The yeah. worst is yeah. when you don't have anything mm-hmm. to do, you yeah. Know? And then the only medicine for that is drink. So, like, so the idea that you would not be working, um, and that you would not just be, uh, you know, a body. Like, I, I hate. I fucking hate this term bodies when people use it all the time. Because <laughs> I used it earlier in the episode when they were like, gay <laughs> bodies, our bodies. Like I'm just using my own bodies, I guess, to make the, make the point. But it's like, it's so materialistic to me that I just, it seems to like contribute to the problem that it's supposed to be critiquing. But anyway, like when you'd say like, oh, our you know, only our bodies, um, you know, or they're, they're just labor, you know, they're just labor cogs. And I think, and when they're not working, then that's pain. And only, you know, drinking can help us get through those times. Mm. And it's really, it's really interesting. Like there's that Adorno line where he says, I think he's talking to Horkheimer and he says something like, um, but what would people do with their free time? You know, meaning like you're just going to be stuck in that. Um, like fundamental fantasy I forget actually what Adorno's word is for it but that fundamental fantasy of like exchange like constant exchange value like even if you have free time you're going to use it you're going to funnel it into a work-like activity or you're going to have to fill it with something that is you know productive so like free time isn't the answer and this movie like really points that out like well <laughs> you know uh, the only way to deal with free time which is absolute hell is to do something that totally obliterates you you -hmm. know um and so yeah I think that that's I think that that's all good and I think that that you know in some ways it is trying to say that this is a condition I'm not saying it's not saying that women don't face this but this movie is so focused on this as being a problem that I think men who are asked to be productive um face you know especially in that time period as well
1: yeah, I think the time period is is probably really important, and a good a good kind of companion piece to this would be something that would explore the ways in which kind of um, domestic labor was made into into a uh, sphere for women, and you know women were systematically excluded from the workforce or from the kind of public labor outside of the home, um, and the the inverse of that relationship is this kind of labor becomes um, the the normal expectation. And you realize just how kind of profoundly not only not only economically or financially alienating this is, but it 's libidinally and 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 psychologically sort of scarring you know if you if you think you know um, thomas or uh, Ephraim says that he 's constantly looking for a fresh start he 's looking for the kind of um, like answer the the one thing which is going to fix his sort of existential condition. And the problem is not anything wrong with his existential condition. The problem is, you know, late nineteenth-century capitalism doing what nineteenth 19th, late nineteenth-century 19th capitalism does.
2: And it reminded me, in that sense, of um, of uh, Train Dreams. Do you guys know this novel by Dennis Johnson? Um, no, no, no. Oh, no, it, no. it's one. Of, it came out in two thousand eleven. It's definitely one of the best novels. Uh, I mean, in the past fifty years, it's very slim. Um, and in fact, it reminded me also, there's, it has this black and white cover, but it's about, uh, this guy who's a railroad laborer in the, um, early 20th century and his house burns down and he sort of loses track of his family. And the rest of the book is him just sort of wandering from place to place, like trying to find a job, like trying to find work, you know, Mm. and trying to find some meaning, but all the while having this you know, haunted memory of having a daughter and having his wife and having lost his track of his family. And of course, there's no way to find people in this time period, you know. Um, Well, there is, but maybe, but not in the same way that we could find them now and definitely without any guarantee at all. And so, you know, he hears sort of rumors about them, but he still has to you know, feels he has to find work to give himself meaning and there's no other purpose, you know? And so you get this real picture of people grappling with that, you know, that intense reality, which to some extent has loosened up for us internally, um, in the way we think, but I, I, you know, the problem is obviously still with us. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's, you know, That as a theme in the movie is interesting because, um, though the sort of shape of the problem has changed and maybe there's a little more breathing room for us in our thoughts, you know, we're still facing it. So this movie issues a kind of challenge in that way, um which is weird, you know. Usually things <laughs> usually these kinds of critiques of, you know, labor and 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 productivity and all that kind of stuff are much more direct for us and um this is you know, takes a little bit of a detour and and it's a strange one. And I also want to say sorry I'm talking a lot. I drank way too much caffeine before I met you guys, but um <laughs> but uh you know, like also you know, this idea that sex and pleasure will be the thing that derails you. I mean, it's like a siren, literally a siren, yeah, a siren, siren song. to crash, you know? Yes. <laughs> and, and of course that is what happens, you know, like his destruction is like comes after him trying to free himself by following, you know, following some sort of pleasurable experience, but he can't ever sort of attain it. Now I think taken literally as a truth, like, I think that's actually incorrect, you know, and I would maybe side with Deleuze and Guattari and, and also Fourier, that like, actually there is an escape route um, through pleasure and through following your desire. So not totally a psychoanalytic reading, which would say that that would actually not really get you anywhere. <laughs> um, but I do think that like, it's a, that's where the horror lies in this movie really, is that there isn't an escape, you know, um, there's no escape at all. Yes, um, I
0: I really like the these these points that we're bringing up, and I think um one of the things for me and and to bring it kind of back to the parallels between this and The Witch is like, uh the the, the scene where Robert Pattinson is kind of like, uh the the first scene, the first thing where he finds the mermaid on the beach, right? Like it's it's him like effectively sexually assaulting this mermaid, right? We have we have like what is de facto an unconscious woman that's being groped by Robert Pattinson, or Robert Pattinson's character rather. And I think one of the things of this movie is that you've got uh, kind of one of the consequences of how capital and patriarchy structure the, like, male experience. And that you've got two guys who have, like, deeply complicated and weird uh, sexual lives and a lot of emotions, but they're effectively forbidden from engaging with any of them, right? The release that they need to find is less about kind of escaping the material brutality of the work that they have to do and more about escaping the kind of like as i guess foucault would ex- uh suggest like this internal prison and in panopticon they've set up in their own minds about what they can and cannot express because mm. it's like conceptually i think like like if you pitch a movie about like Uh, two two guys in a lighthouse like discovering each other emotionally and sexually like the the base pitch for this movie could have been something still deeply horrific but also deeply liberating like the witch but instead they they both kind of recapitulate and uh reify those those internal structures that have forbidden them from finding the freedom that they were hunting for throughout the course of the film
1: i don't know i don't know there's there's something in the text though that that I I, obviously we don't we don't really know what what Eggers is trying to you know obviously intentional fallacy blah 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 but (laughs) but like is there not this the the idea of this the unknowable desire or the fact that like we don't really we don't really want what we say we want which is the kind of classic Freudian Lacanian position on desire this that it is a kind of negative like this, the 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 desire for the light, the kind of intangible substance substanceless uh, it, it, thing which exists up there beyond the kind of uh, norms of date it suggests to me that I think you know even if the film doesn't come down on one side or the other, that like it is p- kind of sympathetic to this Freudian idea that like desire is a kind of negative, and actually desire itself is not necessarily uh it's it's the inability to admit what we really want which is the problem not the thing that we want in and of itself
0: yeah i think that's I, I think that's really interesting and one of the things that i i kind of think of in response to that is like this film does have a lot of like lovecraftian subtext mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of there's a lot of having sex with sea monsters and of course like um willem defoe's curse where like the final layer of the curse he puts on uh Ephraim's character or Ephraim is is like invoking a nameless ancient deity that even the sea has forgotten and and you know one of like the classic Lovecraft lines everyone always goes back to is is that like part of part of the truest and deepest horror is the inability of the human mind to correlate its own contents and that correlation in fact keeps us safe from realizing things we can't realize it's deeply Freudian right yeah and you've got you've got them struggling for this light you know the the top of the lighthouse this abstract thing that we don't we there, there's something eerie about it, but we don't really know what the lights, what the light is. It's very weird in the weird fiction sense. But like, is is that what they really desire? Is that what they really want? You know, like their their desires have been sublimated into this kind of mystical force of light and away from the things that they seem to actually want.
2: If that makes any sense, or maybe I'm just rambling. Yeah, well, I mean, he, you know, um, Ephraim really you know, fixates on getting up there and seeing what the light is when Defoe has been sort of up there all the time. I mean, I would say neither of them really seem too satisfied, although it is this ecstatic experience when he gets up there at the end, um, of, of Jouissance, you know, that ultimately, you know, I guess it kills him. That's, it's sort of weird, you know, the, the, when, when he's up there with the light and sticking his hand in it, um, and getting overwhelmed. And then he falls down the steps and then somehow he's outside. Actually, I thought that that last, that would be my final critique, I suppose, or sort of negative, you know, or complain about it is that that scene came too abruptly. Um, Actually, when, you know, he's falling down the stairs and then suddenly he's on the beach um, being eaten by seagulls. But I think, so I think that that does. Yeah. I think that that lends itself to what you're saying, Ash, which is like, you know yeah you don't get to achieve what you, Well, it's what both of you are saying basically you don't necessarily <laughs> you know what you want isn't necessarily what you want and even if it were when you get it you don't want it anymore because you don't want to have it you want to want it mm-hmm. but I think that um you know <laughs> I think that that is the point of this being a horror movie you know I don't mm-hmm. like I don't agree with that principle ultimately although I did 4 years of lacanian analysis and I you know and I didn't want more so that's how I know that I'm right. <laughs> but um <laughs> but but I think that like um you know it's like that but that is what is so horrific. Um and that's what I was saying before about there not being an exit. I mean I did, there there are these moments, you know, where you think there's going to be a break. Um and they might even be horrific moments, right? Like You have this really, this moment where they're holding each other and slow dancing, um, which again, people were laughing their asses off in Ireland. And I actually felt uncomfortable when everybody was laughing at that part. Um, But then it's broken by a fight, you know, and you see how untenable um, any kind of affection is. And the only time really that the affection comes, which is completely you know, that you'd feel it there too, is like he's leading Defoe around as a dog later on a leash and mm-hmm. he's saying, good boy, that's a good lad, you know? These are the kinds of things that, like, gay guys say to each other when they're having sex or porn or doing puppy play, I guess, you know? I
0: was going to say, bold this movie to include some puppy play.
2: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But it's al- it's almost like, you know, there's almost like this weird tenderness in that in that very brief moment where he's you know, sort of leading him and Defoe going along with it, which is also strange considering that, you know, the next scene he charges him with an ax, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and then, you know, the scene where William Defoe, right before he curses, right before Thomas curses Thomas, um, or (laughs) Ephraim, you know, where he's like, (laughs) you don't, you know, you, you like my lobster, right? Like you like the way I cook lobster, you know? Yeah. It's this weird searching moment. And I think, You know, those are the moments that, you know, there, there is a little bit of affection there, but it's so fragile. I think it's, there's like some Mm -hmm. Paul Goodman quote about like the ego is totally certain, but utterly fragile. You know, it's like, that is, (laughs) that is the condition of manhood in this movie for sure. And I think a, a way that a lot of people think about manhood now or who are in sort of interrogating and thinking about it, um, that it's like. You didn't like my lobster. Well, now I will utterly destroy any trace of your existence, you know <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> you didn't reciprocate at all, and and the moments where there is any kind of reciprocation, something terrible happens constantly, so it's always coming together and breaking apart. you know
1: I think that I think that's a really important point, this notion of like again, with, without sort of veering too deep into the into the the, the murk of psychoanalysis, that the the other is is basically unbearable. Right, we're fine. We're fine with the other if they can be kept uh, th- at a mediated distance. You know, like you, if you can get drunk together, then it's fine because you're not actually kind of dealing with one another on a sort of like the booze is the mediator between the two of you. And but that's also what brings you closest together in that uh, in that scene where they end up kind of tenderly slow dancing together. But it's when you actually when you actually encounter the other when you actually get told actually no your your supper always tastes like shit i'm sick of i'm sick of your kind of uh gross corporeal nature i'm sick of you farting all the time then violence ensues because the ego has to defend itself
0: yeah yeah i i think um I, i think we can we can go to like a second layer inception dream here Let's and, do it. <laughs> you know, we we have we have like this uh deep fear of the other that's going on. But these these two characters aren't truly others, right? By and by through the film, as Connor just um, pointed out, we find out that they're both Thomas. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I don't I don't think um making them both named Thomas was, was was incidental here. Is incidental to the plot, right? The, the, these two guys, you know, these two guys are just guys being guys. Uh, John, as you said earlier,
1: just guys, ga- just guys recording. being dudes, just guys being and, like, dudes together. <laughs>
0: They, they both have a hyperfixation on on the light and, and whatever that is supposed to represent. They, they both have these like incredibly like uh, strange sexualities. They both have these like intense bodily lives. Right. We've got Willem Dafoe farting all the time and just being very crass. And then we've got Robert Pattinson um, like constantly grunting and screaming. You know, they've got they've both got these uncomfortable physical existences and then you get like this slow dance scene you you get you get that extended scene where they're cuddling where like for the first time in the movie that they're both kind of like happy and enjoying each other is when they've like effectively started to merge in, in both physical proximity and the landscape of their emotions but but that's kind of untenable because that opens up to the fact that like this entire time at the lighthouse could have been awesome if they both would have just been cuddling the whole time and, like, jacking off and enjoying <laughs> just being dudes. But that that's a, that's a space that they're fundamentally locked out from by the dictates of, of, like, the societal structures we live under, right? So you have them kind of unable to, to ascend to this next level.
2: Yeah. I mean, just furthering my theory that we need to destroy heterosexuality. I mean, entirely. Yes. You know? <laughs> I mean, right. It could have been a great experience in the lighthouse. I mean, it's just sort of romantic. You know, you're living inside a giant dick, you know, right? and like you are. I mean, I mean, the problem is like. I wouldn't probably be attracted to William Defoe, but if I were stuck there, you know, I would make the most of it, and I were getting paid, right. you know. Um.
1: You know, it would be <laughs> but, a it would be a story. You know, you could look back and be like, "Let me tell you about this crazy winter when there was just the two, there was just the two of us in this lighthouse. The weather was t- there was so much lobster." like <laughs> there was so much love there. there's so much and love then the mermaid <laughs> showed
2: up yeah then the mermaid had to ruin everything but i think <laughs> i mean i think that again that is this sort of like this this absence of access to pleasure you know um that's, you know, it's not allowable really in the movie at all. I mean, nothing's even, Mm -hmm. nothing's even beautiful. Like Mm. a lighthouse to us would be beautiful now. Right. Like, you know, the, 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 you know, we could sort of romanticize it and everything. And I, and you think about that option that you just said, like, well, if they could just jerk off and cuddle and like, whatever, it would be like a spiritual retreat, you know, but, um, (laughs) you know, and that's something that, you know, we don't really give, we we should give, uh, gay men, not that we're the only ones that do this more credit for, which is like, I'm eroticizing through ritual, the part of your body that shit comes out of, you know, like I've overcome this, you know, thing that is very, very challenging for a lot of other people. And in fact, turned it into a central part of my desire set, you know, and because there's no availability of that, You know, um, to these men, not just. You know, f- not just fucking where the poop comes from, um, <laughs> which you could call this episode. Um, but just but, that's but the
1: t- like that's the title right there. That's the title. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh God.
2: But, but, you know, like the the idea that the choice is not available to them at all. And, mm-hmm. then, and then, of course, you know, like be, and it's because labor is so ennobled over any kind of pleasure or sexuality at all. And again, I can just hear the sort of like Marxist listeners being like, yes, but that is how capitalism dupes. And I don't hear it in Zizek's voice, but that is exactly how capitalism <laughs> dupes us, you know, into thinking that we can make our jobs pleasurable. It's like, no, it's not about making the job pleasurable. It's about eroding and diminishing the qualities of things that look like work by Deciding to, you know, err on and lean into pleasure. Sorry, lean in, um, lean in. Uh. <laughs> Sorry to use that, to uh. phrase, but to to move into <laughs> pleasure and, and 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 something erotic and and sexual.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, def- I definitely think that's kind of like one of the underlying fears of this film. Right, is that. What if, what if your job as a lighthouse keeper was more of, yeah, sure, you got to take care of that lighthouse, but you really have like a three month emotional retreat with a sexually gratifying partner, you know, like, like that and that, like, what if, what if your office job was less of like hammering away at those Excel spreadsheets and more of like a big weird work polycule where you can be open about how you feel about things, you know, like, like the, the, a lot of the horror for this film for me was, was, it was kind of like. The realization that, like, the fundamental nature of work as it's structured under a capitalist society is to completely obliterate any emotional or pleasurable existence when, when like, you the inverse of that is, is kind of presented by the film, right? You know, horror, horror is a diagnostic tool, as we tend to say. You know, the, the reinsertion of pleasure into these systems can fundamentally destroy them.
2: Right. Weren't you thinking, like, were you not also thinking about modern times, the Charlie Chaplin movie when you watch this (laughs) like there there's always the sound of the gears and that like Mm -hmm. horn and all that and then like the jack-off sounds sound like the ticking sounds in the background and like the sounds of the body match up with all the sounds of labor and it just reminded me so much of charlie chaplin being stuck on the cog you know
1: yeah yeah Mm -hmm. um i mean given everything that you've been talking about what what this has really made me think about is um is this is this a film about how more men need to read the work of Wilhelm Reich? <laughs> <laughs> like, that, like I mean, because yeah. if we're if we're talking about this 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 idea of kind of libidinal energies of 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 tearing down the world of work as it is currently co- constituted, and like actually uh, reforming and directing desire on on a kind of mass level away from the the the, the fascism of of, of capitalism then i surely that like Reich's wilhelm reich's work has got quite a lot that that would kind of map onto this film in really interesting ways right
2: yeah i mean i definitely think so you know like the, so much about reich was about um you know well the scientific stuff had a lot to do with you know excitation and uh and anxiety, you know, and, and, and diminishment and pain and suffering versus a kind of arousal and excitation. And there's a lot of sort of charging and discharging in this movie, for sure. A lot of opportunities for eroticism that are lost because they're turned into this other thing, um, where, you know, Reich even said like, you know, when you are, um, excited, your, your orgone energy directs itself to these kinds of parts of your to certain zones in your body, but when you are not, you know, when you're having the opposite reaction, it, it contracts towards the center. And I think it's like, there's a lot of chances for people to sort of express and exude, you know, um, that gets sort of pulled back in right away and and sort of contracted. So, um, and then also there's that, you know, that famous like Reich line where he said, I think, (sighs) He was talking to some Marxist group, I forget who, but he just said, you know, if, if you don't basically, he said, you know, if you don't take care of this sort of sexual repression stuff, you you know, your revolution is just going to turn you into Puritans. It doesn't, it won't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, that's uh, one of the reasons why I got kicked out. <laughs> yeah.
1: It, this, is, this is not a lighthouse. This is a giant organ accumulator. <laughs>
2: Do
1: not at me. <laughs> that is, that is not lights at the top of that building. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, um
2: <laughs>
1: but but like it, I think that's uh, but I do think that 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 is a kind of like serious point here right that the 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 relationship between labor and desire is often something that we kind of reduce down into this um a uh, static binary which really doesn't work, and if this film is about anything, it's about the fact that we find the that that dialectical relationship between. Uh, those two things deeply unstable and actually almost kind of psychologically uh, kind of incomprehensible, you know? This re- like, th- this is why those moments of intimacy always spill over into moments of violence. There's moments of kind of, like, reprieve where the kind of... That surface animosity cracks ever so slightly and there's the potential for these two subjects to move closer together. It's always pushed further apart. So I th- I think... As an exploration of that of that kind of complex dialectical movement between those two points, this is a, this is this is a really really great film.
2: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I, I love you know, and I think also, um, <clears throat> in terms of, like first of all, I'd like that you rerouted it to Reich. If we're talking about psychoanalysis rather than staying in Lacan and Freud, who I've also learned a lot from obviously, but I think that, you know, the Reich gives us the chance to sort of like, you know, overcome it. So maybe this movie just reaches Reich and then kind of stops, you know, It, Mm. it doesn't, it doesn't venture there. So like you're saying, there's a lot to be learned, you know, if you, if you watch this movie and look at it, um, and then go and read Reich if you want to. <laughs> but I think, <clears throat> you know, there's also this this question if we want to sort of pull it away a little bit and just look in terms of masculinity, you know, um, and the ways that people talk about masculinity right now and how they show up in this film when it comes to desire. You know, I mean, this term toxic masculinity is like thrown around and I always take, uh, I, I always think it's sort of a dumb term because... Uh, not always, but most of the time when I ask people, well, can you define masculinity? Like, they don't have a definition for masculinity. So actually part of their compound term is meaningless to them, but the toxic part made sense, you know? So it only makes sense when the two are brought together. But for me, like... So I've tried to define masculinity, and I think that masculinity has something to do, at least, with always wanting to um, seek a role that is approved of, but never achieving it. So there is this kind of like cycle. so masculinity is a desire, in other words. Um, and there's this point in this movie where the where um, Ephraim says to Thomas, "You know, you know, you're not my." you're not my, you're not a captain, you're not a cop, you're not my president, you're not, you're not my father, you know, Mm. as he's sort of like losing it. And he's going through all these roles of masculinity that people aspire to. And they both, you know, at a certain point, realize that they're kind of nothing, you know, and they've rather achieved nothing of each other. They've not, they've not approved of one another. So they, they haven't, you know, so they're stuck in this total desiring state. And you see it also, it's like, they're sitting and facing each other and saying, what, 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 what? You know, this sort of unanswerable question which neither of them can give each other the answer to. And so I think that there's um, this striving and this desire uh, of masculinity in this movie that is isn't fulfilled and isn't fulfillable and is something that you might see if you stuck two men in a room together who weren't able to resolve... <laughs> <laughs> anything yes, amongst yes. themselves or, or had, or, you know, didn't have access to Reich or maybe some pop psych version of it, you know, that could help them through or any sort of critical, uh, faculty, you know, does any of that make sense? Or did I just, um, was that just word soup? Cause I can try to explain <laughs> some of it more. No,
0: no, that made, that made a lot of sense. Yeah. Okay. I, I, d- I definitely think that like, toxic masculinity as a term has kind of gotten like, bandied about so much it's lost any like or it's lost a lot of the initial usefulness it might have had. like the um like what, we, what we've what we seen with the whole like uh like aren't we supposed to believe women discourse around um liz warren's liz Warren. you <laughs> <Yeah>. know like, <laughs> like <yeah>. recent uh <laughs> attempt to lambast the bernie campaign and like like so so that discourse is getting defanged from its original purpose to believe women in terms of like sexual assault and abuse and things like that And I think that like when we talk about masculinity and how masculinity is constructed, it's, you know, where we get lost a lot in, in just like men doing bad things, you know, and like, like a lot of these bad things are kind of like they're, they're, they're transient and they're just kind of part of humanity, right? Like lying and being a dick and things like that. Those are kind of like unlocked from, from any lived experience. But I think that this movie kind of refocuses the, the the masculine discourse and gets kind of like at the heart at what like I would I would call like a quote unquote toxic masculinity right you know we've got these two guys who like 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 there, there's a lot of like strong kink undertones to this film right like that that whole the whole scene where Willem Dafoe is is telling. Um, Ephraim, that he's gonna like scrub the floors again, he's gonna mop them again, he's gonna suck the nails clean and rebuild the entire lighthouse if he tells him to. Like, like there's a lot of like dom sub energy going on there, but because they can't have access to like the the emotive world necessary to let that relationship be healthy, you know, it immediately becomes toxic. It becomes something that will lead to both of their deaths, you know, if left unaddressed.
2: Yeah, because they only have each other, right? So, like, if they both, you know, are this kind of, and they clearly are in some way a mirror image of each other, they're fucked because they're not going to be able to help each other in any sort of meaningful way. And whenever one tries to help the other, it's rejected, you know? Um, Even in the beginning, he's like, it's Winslow, my name, can you call me Winslow? No. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, like any, any attempt, you know, why'd you spill the beans? Any attempt to sort of express is shut down, you know, by the other, because that's the sort of negative reflection. And so you have these two people really seeking approval in one way or another, either as right. It could be as a dom or a sub, it could be as, you know, an affectionate partner, it Mm -hmm. could be whatever it's always. It's always blocked off, you know, and rerouted. And so it has nowhere to go, you know. So eventually just everything kind of falls apart for them. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that scene where, where he's kind of lambasting him and going, you know, you're not a captain, you're not a cop, you're not like, I think that's, that's a really telling scene because to when I w- watched that, I watched it for the first time uh, yesterday uh, it, it, and I watched it in a room with like no lights on, and it was like inc- <laughs> it, it was incredibly like, uh, you know, I think environment makes all the difference. Outside, like it was raining, the room was dark. There was just this little glowing uh square on the screen where it was all playing out in front of me. Like when he when he says that, what, what's really interesting to me is that I I read it as there's this unexpressed fear that what he actually is is frame. He's he's frame in 50 years. Like this is his future and he's kind of like self-consciously rebelling against the kind of tracks that he's already kind of put himself on. You know, this idea of that he's in, he's going to be another, he's going to be one of these people in, in 40, 50 years of, you know, this drunken old guy who is like constantly reminiscing about tall tales from his past and hasn't actually done anything. And is just kind of slowly dissolved in, in, in turpentine and honey and so what I, I really like that idea that really, you know, what he's rebelling against is his own possible future. What he's kind of disgusted by is what he could become all too easily.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I like that as well. I mean, it's something that, you know, I think people have read this movie as, oh, like they're the same person and you're just sort of going through a cycle of this person's life who's caught in some sort of, you know, figurative, I would say, nobody's really saying it literal, but figurative time loop, you know, where you're seeing all these versions at once. We haven't, we haven't talked about the, the fourth character. So there are the two men, there's the siren. And then there are these brief moments where Winslow, the original Winslow, that, um, Thomas slash Jeffrey got the names are confusing but watched <laughs> die you know on the work site when he was doing timber and sort of took his identity and there is this moment and you you see this kind of moment in other films and so it's a little bit of a surprise to see it here where um Pattinson's beating Defoe up and he looks up and for a moment he sees Winslow the man who 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 died Yeah, yeah yeah and yeah, yeah. It it's a really it's it it's a moment that we've seen in other films it's a moment of beauty you know this pause in the middle of violence you know where you see something that is beautiful or is filled with feeling or you know is very rich with quality and um yeah i guess i just wanted to sort of think about that a little bit because i don't I don't quite know how it fits, you know. Um y- you feel it when he tells the story earlier of watching him sort of fall into the logs. Um and just sort of he slipped and I stood there, you know, and he, and and he just watched him die so he could take his job, you know, <laughs> so he could take his identity yeah. and and continue to work. Like he was willing to watch someone die so he could work. Um And what other way is there really, you know, I mean, that is what labor is. (laughs) It's like watching people die so you can get their jobs, you know, Um, fired or laid off or whatever. So you can fill the slot while they starve to death because, you know, the end game of work is death. So, you know, it's like, oh, well, there goes that one. But he took his identity, too. And he's being watched by him as he kills someone else or tries to kill someone else almost.
1: Yeah, I I think that this film is full of these like incredibly striking moments, right? Those these they're sort of like short, sharp shocks that just sort of um, they just sort of like drop are dropped into a frame or into a handful of frames, and then like it moves on. But I really like this idea that violence is um, like cyclical, you know? It, it and there's this there's this interesting tension between like action and inaction, and what and at what point. It, are you are you doing something by choosing not to do something i think that's i think that's because you don't you didn't just stand there and watch him you decided to stand there and watch him and so there's this there's i think if if we think about it like there's this, this idea of like culpability and involvement in in violence that is not easy to extricate ourselves from so I don't know. I don't know if I have a kind of like clearly defined response to it, but that that's what that's what what you were saying made me think about.
0: Yeah, yeah. I found I found the scenes with original Winslow. I guess for, for a lack of a better way to to, to differentiate that character, uh, to to be really interesting, right? Because they always come in in these abrupt, jagged flashes, and they're always interwoven with other things going on, mm. <clears throat> right? Right. I think. Um, so we have we have the scene where um Ephraim is kind of like furiously masturbating holding the kind of uh you know the, the the totem of that mermaid and and his vision is just strobing between uh you know you know Thomas original Winslow and his vision of the mermaid and then you have you know the the fight later on where you've got like those same things intermixing between themselves and you see original Winslow kind of flickering in between uh you know himself and like the the mermaid's hands kind of caressing um Ephraim's face, right and so i I really it's hard to interpret that scene, but I think that one of the things that it makes me think of is what what is locked behind original Winslow because original Winslow can't be directly grappled with because it keeps it only ever appears in these brief flashes and it's only ever brought out by these other like really excited states of emotion, right? Either murdering someone or kind of furiously masturbating. So one of the two. Um, And it's all, it's also intermixed with like the original Winslow um, as a character is kind of deeply linked in to the mermaid because those two are kind of always appearing together, right? You know, that original sequence with those surreal logs floating in the ocean kind of ends with the mermaid's first appearance you've got the masturbation scene again where they flicker back and forth and you've got the murder scene where they flicker back and forth. And then you've got these kind of like denied levels of reality, right? Like if the mermaid represents anything, it's the, the sexual neuroses and sexual denials of Ephraim's character. And then you've got original Winslow um, representing the, the denied past and kind of this, like, you know, I guess, I, I guess for, for, it works out as kind of like a hauntological future, right? Because original Winslow is a lost future for Ephraim. It's it's a, something he can never, ever, ever have, but could have had if he, you know, had maybe not let uh, original Winslow die.
2: Huh. Yeah. Or m- maybe not, you know, maybe, maybe it's just, right. there is that. Yeah. I mean, and the movie's in black and white, right? Like, I mean, we're talking about all these sort of like, flicking on and off and back and forth and polarities and stuff. And I mean, the movie didn't have to be in black and white, you know, it takes place later than the witch did, you know, and the witch was in full color, you know, I think maybe we would settle on like, like this is like, I would say this is, you know, the, while the witch is like a Deleuze and Guattari movie, this is a Lacan movie. Would we, would you guys agree? <laughs>
1: I can get behind that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. No, actually
2: the the more I think about it, yes, I think that's, I think that's pretty accurate actually. Um, Even, even like the end, right? Like, so the witch is like, you know, she's not transcending anything, but she is rising up into the air with, you know, pleasure and affirmation. And, you know, it's like this sort of going into the experience and exacerbating it and making it more intense until there's this, you know, so-called line of flight, you know, really, you know, in that movie. And, and, and in this, it's like, well, (laughs) you (laughs) let your desire get, you know, you, you let your desire get ahead of you. You know, you let, you gave, you gave way to it, you know, and you ultimately end up on the ground. Like what? you know, you end up pulled down to the earth, absolutely like knocked down because of this moment of jouissance, which, which you could not handle because you had no frame. And now, you know, you're just being sort of uh, torn apart by the, world, <laughs> torn apart by the world and there's no escape. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's, it's, it is it's, this, this uh, jouissance, this ecstatic communion with the real, which, you know, psychologically and physically we can't handle, you know, this, the, the, you, you wash up uh, on the shore just obliterated by it because that's what it does. Uh, Good times. Yeah, just, <laughs> Like, say, guys say, guy, like guys guys I, I say, guys being dudes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> there is like, you know, there's one, it's funny, there's like one erotic moment in this movie for me and I don't even know why it's erotic to me. Okay, it's going to sound a little weird. But it's like, There's, like, the pot, like, when the room fills with water and the pot is sort of floating around and Robert Pattinson's, like, trying to piss in it. I'm not into, like, piss at all, (laughs) although you might look into my oeuvre of films and say otherwise, but I'm not into it. But there's something, like, what, there is this, like, exhibition of manliness in that act of trying to, like, (laughs) get it in the pot as it's, like, floating around, like... Where, you know, um, something about, like, aiming, you know, Um, and, and, and imagining him, like, doing that, that is erotic. But besides that, like, in spite of him being in this movie and being, like, you know, extremely handsome, it's just not a sexy movie, you know, which is, like everything here should be sexy someone you know shoveling whatever my you know weird fucked up proletariat fantasies are like someone shoveling coal into a lighthouse with like a you know a jumper on should be hot but it's mm, right. not at all
0: <laughs> I, I was gonna say there are plenty of calendars that feature like still images from this movie right <laughs> You but know, in like, the like, movie, like, like like shirt shirtless dude shoveling coal, right? It's just like <laughs> it's That, that right. is a classic uh, homoerotic image concept.
1: Shirtless dude who and is just wearing like uh like uh, dungarees covered in white paint, right.
2: flailing flailing <laughs> cl- tentacles clinging to the
1: side of a big pal- <laughs> lighthouse.
2: I think Kurt Eichenwald has the flailing tentacles one. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not let that go, guys. Let's not let that go.
1: <laughs> just, just, let's just let's just remember that that was a thing. <laughs> oh, if if he if he's
0: remembered for anything, it's going to be that and that alone.
1: Yeah, one hundred
0: percent. There are there are but s- yeah, but yeah, there are there are so many uh moments of this movie that 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 I completely agree they should be really your product right? You've got Robert Pattinson when he's um patching the roof, and, and he's and he's like, there's that really voyeuristic scene where he's watching William Dafoe masturbate. And like, like there's another one, right? You've got sex with a mermaid. You've got tentacle porn. You've got like all of these deeply erotic sequences. You've got puppy. You've got literally puppy play in this movie, (laughs) 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 right? This movie should have something erotic for pretty much anybody, right? (laughs) But like the way the text of the film is presenting itself, the way it's kind of denying eroticism to these bodily realities, right? And and I I really like that comment you made at the top of the episode, where like. Farts exist in this kind of weird space as far as bodily things go, right? Like, like there are definitely uh, uh, kink scenes where farts are heavily eroticized. You know, there are whole spaces dedicated to that. But farts are silly, right? They're goofy. They're childish. You know, they, they don't have the same uh, uh, dialed-up disgust that coprophilia would have, but they don't have the same kind of uh, near neutrality that something like sweat has as far as like bodily release and secretion and this 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 movie is treating uh Robert Pattinson standing standing over you masturbating with the same kind of physical flatness as it's treating Willem Defoe farting in the opening scenes it's trying to give them the same kind of inherent neutrality which is which i think makes a lot of these scenes i guess for lack of a better word surreal in a way
1: yeah it's about this this notion that you could you could have the 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 form of of desire but emptied of its content, mm-hmm. and there's something kind of horrifying about that.
0: You know, I th- it it's kind of like the horrific inverse of like the, those commercials where it'll be like a like a, like a sexy shirtless Fabio looking dude, and then some like ultra hot babe, and then it's just like uh buy buy the new scent by Calvin Klein, and like it's supposed to be sexual imagery, but it's also kind of deeply divorced of anything sexual.
2: Huh. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a really good way to frame all of it. I was wondering, like, as you were talking about all the things that were in it, I was like, is Robert Eggers, brother who wrote it with him, gay? And then I looked up a photo, like photos of him and he is like, well, I think he's like married to this woman. I can't tell. Not that that necessarily means anything, but like, he's like the most baby faced, like, like <laughs> ch- like chubby twink looking guy in the world and i was thinking like uh but he, like one of them has to have this catalog of stuff like l- lurking in them do you know <laughs> like there's no way that this there's no way that all those tropes get sort of popped out into the movie into like consciously and intentionally like you know from two straight married men you know <laughs> i mean
0: yeah d- Pu- puppy play and tentacles don't just come out of the ether you know <laughs> or, i mean it's like
2: or, or like uh, the uh, either they either they like don't or the it's even worse than that and like jung was actually right about something which is horrible <laughs> like i don't even want to con- i don't even want to conceive of that
0: no right <laughs> so that's that that the, the darkest timeline. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think, like, and even even if neither of the Egger brothers or anyone else involved in the production of this film has any of the myriad of kinks we've kind of worked through in the film, working out the kinks through Lighthouse, but, like, even if they don't, like, I think there's – it all kind of goes back to, like, you know, one of the fundamental uh, amazing and incredibly bizarre things about the human experience is we'll eroticize literally anything – you know, like, it doesn't matter. We've got puppy play. We've got pornophiliacs, We've got tentacle fetishes. You know, like, like, that's kind of the human condition is if if we can experience it, we'll also eroticize it.
2: Right. If we got and, Pattinson and, saying, if I had a steak, a rare bloody steak, I would fuck it. He <laughs> says that in the movie.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. We haven't, like, I didn't even think about it. This movie, this movie covers like the, the mukbang community with the lobster <laughs> and steak discourse.
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, like and and yet and it makes it make it makes it about as impossible um to eroticize as you can. It's the mm-hmm. have, you, have you guys seen this movie Wetlands? Do you know this movie? This um No, I no. Know, I think it's German. Oh, it's excellent. But it's about this um <laughs> it's about this young woman who eroticizes like bodily fluids. So the very first scene is her like going into a public Restroom and rubbing her vagina all over the seat of the toilet, and then like she's like eating her boogers and popping pimples on people. It is a really difficult movie to watch at times. It's very funny. Also, it's like a it's a romantic comedy, which is like crazy. Oh my god, this is amazing. Yeah, but it's the it's the exact opposite of this movie, right? Like where. The viewer, you know, is like, well, the viewer is grossed out, but also, like, you're like, oh, I guess somebody can eroticize all these, you know, fluids and, you know, ex excretions.
1: Uh, I, I well, I think that sounds like a a, fu- a a future a future horror vanguard episode. But that's gonna be that's gonna be for our second show when we pivot to romantic comedies. Rom communism is gonna be a thing, goddamn. Rom communism is gonna be the horror vanguard spin-off show.
2: Rom communism? Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. Well, isn't I I am I allowed to say that I'm gonna be on the show again and we will be talking about a rom com sort of next time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so uh, we're gonna we're gonna, yeah,
1: we're gonna there's gonna be some discourse on this one because uh I'm I'm very excited to see what we all think about it. Um yeah uh final final points of praise for this film because I know this is something that this is one that we all really liked, so let's finish on like a a kind of strong positive note uh Ash, you go first
0: i I absolutely love the visuals in this film. I am a sucker for anything that could even be loosely described as lynchian and and pretty much every sequence in this film there there is something haunting, there is something eerie, there is the presence of absence. This movie is just hitting all of my buttons when it comes to to weird, surreal, and slightly experimental
1: filmmaking. It is, it is, it is so good. It is the sequel to Herman Melville's Moby Dick. I never knew that I needed. Um, uh, I I, I, mean, I mean that. I
0: mean could, could you have that. Made the, almost could you made Moby Dick More erotic. <laughs>
1: I, mean, I mean that almost entirely seriously as well. The more I think about it. Um, <laughs> It, it's it's it kind of marks out Eggers as one of the most exciting directors working in horror film. It's technically genuinely astounding in places. It looks beautiful. Like some of the shots in this are like portraiture, um, mm-hmm. and it is, as Ash pointed out, just creepy and haunting and and unsettling in all the right ways.
2: Yeah. I mean, I was so happy that it was good because, you know, after we watched Midsummer, I was really sort of, which I thought was going to be great and was not, I was really braced for this to not be so good either. And, you know, of course, Akers and Ari Aster are friends and, you know, both definitely, you know, filmmaking geniuses in the right, but, you know, it could have just, it could have been like that. It could have been a bit of a mess. And in fact, It was absolutely, it was absolutely incredible. And, you know, I think like (laughs) for all the talk of sort of Lovecraft and, and New England horror and all that kind of stuff, rather than just embracing that and, and, and only really doing a version of that, it decided instead to use that as the occasion for which we would understand you know, the horror of, uh, (laughs) of men encountering each other, of human beings being reduced to labor and of, you know, like not having any, not feeling like you have any real options except, you know, except two unpleasant polarities. So I really, uh, I really enjoyed it as well.
0: I, I think that is. I, I think you just hit the nail on the head for me. That that this is the horror of men encountering each other. That that, that is the the deep essence of this film. Like, thank you, thank you for that statement. That really nails it.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, I think I think that is that's a perfect place to to wrap things up as well. <laughs> right, yeah. um,
2: are we going to talk about how this movie completely failed the Bechdel test? <laughs> <laughs>
0: You know, you know, I, okay, okay. So, so a counterpoint to that, we don't know who the mermaid is screeching at. She yeah. might have her mermaid sisters off, off camera in the sea. <laughs> yeah. This this movie gets a Bechdel pass, uh, theoretically.
2: Well, I mean, I think, like, just sorry, one last thing is like, I think no, go for it. that this is, I mean, that's why, you know, the fact that it's men encountering each other's way, it's, it's, it's exactly why, you know, this movie, I think, is also something that, um, People who, you know, like the people who identify as women and are not in this sort of world of these kinds of men would want to watch because it really shows it as a horror, you know, (laughs) it's not, it's not, it's not fun. And it's also, um, no pun intended. It's also illuminating, you know, Um, (laughs) it really, it really is, you know, um, yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. If, if you if you want insight to, to kind of like the the strains on like the I, I guess the cishet emotional space, this this film would be a window into that.
1: Um, and yeah, if you if you uh, we I've, I've I've long held a theory on horror Vanguard that men are men are bad uh, and should be should be cancelled and stopped. Um, but this this is proof that actually uh, it's also horrifying and and maybe it needs to be stopped for their own good
0: <laughs> yeah i mean like as as connor said earlier destroy heterosexuality like that that i think is part of the film
2: i like men don't even the men in this movie don't even have the option of making a deal with the devil you know and selling their souls like right. they just don't have they, <laughs> yeah. the beginning condition is no soul so it's like it's too <laughs> too bad <laughs> Or,
1: or, if, or if there is a soul, it, it's resurrected into some seagulls, which will then get beaten to death by an incredibly angry and sexually frustrated Robert Pattinson.
2: But then eat the person that beat them to death. It's like the Lion King in that way. It really, is one of the main influences. The circle of life. Um, uh, well, there
1: you have it, folks. You brought it all the way around. There you have it, folks. Uh, the lighthouse is uh, very much like the Lion King. Um... <laughs> Goodbye, Lakuna <laughs> Matata. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh um, all I, right, yeah, that was all
0: right. Cool. Um yeah well uh, thank you thank you everyone for listening to this uh, amazing episode on Disney's the Lion King. Uh, <laughs> thank you thank you, Connor, for coming on the show again. Um, if you want to um, just remind everybody where they can find you and especially where they can financially support you.
2: <laughs> so um, patreon.com forward slash connor Habib um, is where you can contribute to the mission of the show and um, yeah, that's it I, that that's it right now. <laughs> yeah and oh and i guess um twitter connor habib c-o-n-n-e-r-h-a-b-i-b
0: awesome
1: <laughs> uh so so thank you thank you so much to connor thank you so much to everybody for listening um connor is going to be back on the show to complete the the, the triptych to 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 finish the trilogy uh, of connor habib on, on horror vanguard episodes um but thank you for listening everybody and we will see you next time
0: days spooky <laughs>